Well, those of you that know me, uh, you know that my role is the equipping pastor. Uh, those that, you, that don't know me, that's what I am. I'm the equipping pastor here. And even this morning, many of you came to be equipped uh, as the equipping pastor here at GCV. Um, this is one of our high priorities. We talk about it quite a bit. You actually saw it on our mission statement. And so if we were to recite our mission statement along with me, you would say, we exist to glorify God by exalting the Savior and equipping the saints. It's great uh, to have that as your mission statement. It's even better when you're fulfilling it. But as the equipping pastor, I'm constantly in the state of evaluation. Why are we even equipping the saints? Why, why come to a, a seminar, a, a conference on sanctification? Why do we equip the saints? What's the main purpose of equipping the saints? And the answer, which you even heard this morning, is it's very simple. We equip the saints so we can be more like Christ. We, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to think like Jesus. We want to act like Jesus. We want to sound like Jesus. We want to love like Jesus. We want to serve like Jesus. The goal of equipping is that we would become more mature in our Christ-likeness. That is the aim. But we also have another aim, and it's helping others to know Jesus. It's helping others to not just know Jesus, but to love Him and to serve Him and ultimately to be mature in Christ. That is the third part of our mission statement. So we not only exist to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, but what's the third part of our mission statement? To extend the kingdom. We want to extend the kingdom. That is our mission. And if we're not exalting the Savior and equipping the saints, then we for sure will not be extending the kingdom. So exalting Jesus, it's necessary. Equipping the saints, it's necessary. But exalting and equipping at GCV needs to be an outward focus as well. And I realize in, in church ministry, I've noticed two deterrents from actually fulfilling our third part of the mission statement. Those deterrents are believing that extending the kingdom, it's just the work of the pastors. It's just the mission. So Missionary Month, we're, we're, we're grateful for our missionaries. We got several of them in Uganda, Albania, in Italy. We, we've got missionaries around the world. We support them, and they're doing the mission's work. And it would be a mistake to think that it's just the pastors and elders and missionaries who are extending the kingdom. The second hindrance is believing that this only happens on the corporate level. So at the ministry fair, we have an evangelism tent. And every ministry that kind of fits under the umbrella of evangelism, that is us as a church fulfilling our mission statement. The truth is, every single one of us, every single one of us plays a vital role in extending the kingdom Without exception, if you're sitting in a chair this morning, you play a role in extending the kingdom. And the way that happens is through individual gospel encounters. Individual gospel encounters. So this morning what I want to do is I want to take us to a very famous text. It's a fascinating text. It's in Acts chapter 8. So would you open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 26 to the end of the chapter, and it's just a joy to be able to come and, and open up this text, take a little break from John, 
Scott will be back in John next week, John 14. But our attention this morning is in Acts chapter 28 as we look at this individual gospel encounter. So follow me as I read 26 and following. This is what God's word says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of God carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Ezotus, and he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Would you please join me as I pray? Oh, Father, I pray that you would be so gracious to us this morning to open up our eyes, to open up our ears, to open up our hearts, to really hear what the Spirit has for us this morning. We've enjoyed singing songs, rich and robust in truth, encouraging our hearts, filling us with faith. And now, God, I pray that we would be quick to listen, to submit to the authority of your word. Help me, God, lose myself and put Christ before us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all the chapters in the book of Acts, if you've read Acts, they're all exciting. But this one in particular is probably one of my favorites. It's a passage about an individual encounter. Up to this point, thousands and thousands of people have got saved in the book of Acts. But this is the first time we have an individual gospel encounter. The book of Acts is about one thing, really. It's about the Spirit of God continuing to advance the gospel. The Spirit of God is advancing the gospel through the followers of Christ. The amazing thing about Acts is the gospel keeps going out. It's being preached and proclaimed. And as the gospel goes out, God keeps bringing people into the church. The elect are called in. So what's Acts about? Christ is preached. People are getting saved. Christ is preached. People are getting saved. Acts 8 is simply another story in God's great redemptive plan to bring people into the church And he's using his chosen instruments to draw people into the family of God. 
in the entire book of Acts, and especially here in Acts 8, what we get to see is the Great Commission being fulfilled, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. It's happening in the book of Acts. At the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the remotest parts of the earth. We get to see that being played out right here in Acts chapter 8. Another thing that's clear in the book of Acts is nothing is stopping God from advancing the kingdom. Nothing. Nothing is stopping God from advancing the kingdom right now in 2018. Today, He's saving people. Today, He's rescuing people from the pit of hell. He longs for people to be saved, and He desires that you be a part of that. He wants both you and I to be a part of extending this kingdom. There's going to be a day when you can't share the gospel anymore. Where time's going to run out. Jesus is going to come back just like He said. There will be no need for you to share the gospel with anybody. Because the kingdom will be realized. Our Savior is going to return. We're going to glory in Him for all of eternity. But until He comes back, We have an unfinished task. We have an obligation. We have a great commission. So the question this morning for all of us is, are you playing your individual role in advancing the gospel and extending the kingdom? Are you passing on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? How are you doing in your own individual gospel encounters? You know, in basketball we'd say, Hey, the team is only as good as the individual players. It's the exact same thing for us here at Grace Church of the Valley. If we're going to be successful as a church, then each of us individually need to be playing our part in communicating the gospel. So I'm really hoping that Acts chapter 8 for us this morning, it challenges us, but it also encourages us to be faithful to the Great Commission. So our outline for today, you'll see it up here. It's very simple. Acts 8, 26 through 40, it reveals three preparations. Three preparations for an effective gospel encounter. And after we look at those three preparations, we're going to look at three personal commitments. What you and I are to do that will prepare us to be faithful when we have those gospel encounters. So three preparations. We have the preparation of the messenger, the recipient, and the encounter. So the first is the preparation of the messenger. Who is this Philip that we come across here in Acts 8? What kind of man was Philip? Well, we're first introduced to Philip in in Acts chapter 6. So I want to be very clear that this is not Philip the Apostle, capital A. Jesus had 12 men. One of those men was Philip. But this Philip here is not Philip the Apostle. He's actually Philip the deacon. And the reason why I want to stress that is because I don't want to start off thinking that Philip was on some sort of superior spiritual level. No, Philip, he's an effective evangelist, but he is not an apostle. You have Peter and Paul who prove to be very prominent in the book of Acts. They're both preaching to the Gentiles and to the Jews. They're expanding the kingdom, but Philip is not one of the apostles. In fact, Philip is just kind of a regular dude. I mean, make no mistake about it. God just doesn't extend the kingdom through apostles. He extends the kingdom through normal people like you and me. Philip is a regular guy. He's a dad. He's got four daughters. Acts chapter 21 tells us that he's got four daughters. 
He's just kind of quietly in the church, serving the tables, loving on people. But he's got a great reputation in the church. Acts 6, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 3 says that Philip was one of the seven men of good repute, and it says that he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Well, what does that mean, he's full of the Spirit and full of wisdom? Well, it just means he's living a sober life. He's not indulging in the desires of the flesh. He's living on purpose. He's not being swayed by the world. He's committed to the lordship of Christ. See, Philip was a man of exemplary character. He's a committed man. He's just serving the church, loving on people. He's compassionate. He's serving widows. But again, he's just a regular guy. Now, for those of you that have read Acts, you might say, well, I've read the book of Acts, and actually, Philip, it says of him that he is a what? An evangelist. So dumb, I mean, he's an evangelist. He's got the gift. And I I don't have that gift of evangelism. I say true, but you know, Philip's not called Philip the evangelist until 20 years later. In Acts chapter 21, Luke, who's writing this, along with Paul, they go and visit Philip, and that's where he's called the evangelist. Do you know why he's called an evangelist? It's probably just because he evangelizes. He doesn't have like a special formula. He doesn't have like the perfect track that he hands out. He's just faithful to evangelize, and that's how he gets the reputation. So if you want to be called, hey, I'm the evangelist, then just evangelize. But Philip, what we see is him very eager to obey. How do we know he's eager to obey? Well, he's doing exactly what the apostles asked him to do, exactly what the church asked him to do. Here in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8, he does what an angel tells him to do. Look at verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And look at verse 27. What does he do? It says, And he arose, and he went. See, Philip was enjoying great success in Samaria. Jesus again said, You're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Well, Philip gets to be the impetus for that. He's preaching. He's performing miracles. Revival has broken out in Samaria. And he gets to be a part of that. He's witnessing fruitful labor in Samaria as he's preaching. And now an angel comes and says, Hey, I want you to get up and leave. Wait a second here. But, but, but look at all the great things that are going on as you're using me here, Lord, in Samaria. He doesn't complain. He doesn't argue. He doesn't rationalize. He just trusts and he obeys and he goes. Again, we see his eagerness to obey in verse 29. It says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. Verse 30, So Philip ran to him. Uh, Some believe that he actually had to go running because the chariot's jamming along and he had to kind of like Hussein bolt it to catch up to it. Now that's probably true, but I think that detail is here that he ran to the chariot Because he's just eager. There's a guy that you want me to minister to? I can share the gospel with him? Let's go. And so he runs to the chariot. He jumps on in there because there's a guy that needs the message of the gospel. So Philip, he's not only obedient, but he's extremely confident in the message. And that produces courage in Philip. How do we know that? Look back at verse 3. This is Saul before he becomes Paul. What's he doing? Saul, he's ravaging the church. He's going from house to house. He's dragging off men and women, and he's committing them to prison. 
Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them. What I love about Philip here is that in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, he doesn't step on the brakes. No, instead he goes and he keeps preaching, and he keeps preaching, and he keeps preaching. And he's going to advance the gospel no matter what. Philip believed Jesus when Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to what? To me. It's that kind of attitude, believing that all power and authority is given to Christ, that made Philip excited and enthusiastic and courageous. He realized he was on the winning team, and so he went and shared the gospel with people who needed it. Look, God doesn't expect you to be sinless. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to take a test that tells you whether or not you have the gift of evangelism. No, if you want to be effective, like Philip in advancing the gospel, yeah, walk in the Spirit. Be humble. Be serving people. Be serving your church. Be confident in the power of the gospel. Have a heart for people. People need to hear it. So the first preparation for an effective gospel encounter is preparation of the messenger. The second is preparation of the recipient. The preparation of the recipient. Look at verse 27. It says, He arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And as he was returning, he was seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, what do we know about the Ethiopian? Well, first of all, he's an outsider. He's a Gentile. It says he's an Ethiopian, so that means he's from the country of Nubia, which today is southern Egypt and Sudan. It also says that he's a eunuch, right? The term usually refers to a harem keeper, but it can also signify a government official. The text says that he was a court official of Candace, and that, that name Candace is really not her name. It's, it's a title much like Pharaoh. So he's serving in her court. He's kind of like her CFO, the chief financial officer, which probably means that he's a wealthy guy. He's traveling in a chariot. Most people during that time, they're walking. If you had a little bit of money, maybe you've got a mule, but this guy's rolling kind of in a chariot. And so he, he's pretty well off. He's established. What else do we know about the Ethiopian? Well, the text says that he was a God-fearer. How do we know he was a God-fearer? Because he was making a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem to worship, which I think is a big deal. That communicates several things. One is this guy is committed. This is a long journey. And I'm sure he kind of had to deal with some of the ridicule from people back home, maybe his family. Why in the world are you going to worship this Jewish God? We've got our own gods here. You're going to make this long go trip. You're going to take a couple months off work, and you're going to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship? But I think this says he's a committed guy. Even though he's a God-fearer, though, I think there's something missing. Now, the text doesn't say how long he was a worshiper. It doesn't say how many times he made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But just thinking about it, if this is his first time, what would he experience he makes a 1,500-mile journey. No car, no plane. He's rolling in his chariot. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he finds out that because he's a Gentile, he only has access to the court of the Gentiles. He can't even fully participate. He's kind of relegated to the outskirts. 
the law was very explicit. It forbid eunuchs the right to enter into the temple. Deuteronomy 23.1 says, No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So whatever enthusiasm this Ethiopian had, I think it was probably just squashed. You can worship, but you've got to worship at an arm's distance. I think that was extremely discouraging for him the first time he found that out. He's really a second, third class worshiper. But imagine, you can't really draw near to God the way that you would want. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, made sure that he didn't leave empty-handed. He actually pulls out a Greek version, the Septuagint, of Isaiah. He's got a scroll with him, and he begins to read. And this is where we see the story get even better. So God, he, he prepares the messengers, and he, he prepares the recipients, but he also provides and prepares the encounters. God is the one who is sovereignly operating. He is the one who's providentially orchestrating all these encounters. God is like the master chess player, and he's got the board of redemptive history, and he's strategically moving his pieces on the board. I know sometimes, I'm guilty of this, I use words like, hey, babe, guess who I ran into by chance? I say, oh, I just, you know, by accident, I just ran into so-and-so. And we use these words, chance and, and accident, when the reality is there's no such thing. There is no circumstance. Everyone we bump, to, bump into, those are divine appointments. Think about this. What are the chances of a man burdened by his sin, searching for the answers to life's more, most important questions, bumping into a guy like Philip on the road to nowhere in the middle of the desert? You say, is that circumstance? Nope. That's God orchestrating that. Persecution had pushed Philip towards Samaria. Who, who, who do you think did all that? That was God advancing the gospel. The Ethiopian traveled such a long distance. At the time, it would have been really considered the ends of the earth. God is in control of that. The Lord prompted Philip to go and talk to this man. The man is reading the most gospel-centered passage in the Old Testament. You talk about a gospel-centered passage, something that elevates Christ while he's actually reading that. Who orchestrated all that? That's God. See, God is at work. He's coordinating every aspect of this encounter. So yes, God is sovereignly and providentially expanding his kingdom, but this is what I want you to hear. God is actually using people to expand the kingdom. He could have just sent the angel to the Ethiopian. You ever think about that? I mean, why not just expedite the process? Just have an angel, boom, come out of nowhere and give the gospel to the Ethiopian. Let's just hurry this thing up. But he doesn't send the angel to the Ethiopian. Who does he send the angel to? He sends the angel to Philip so that Philip could be the bearer of good news to the Ethiopian. I just think that's so thrilling that right now God is at work in your life and he's in the work of other people's lives and he's in the work of bringing these encounters so that we can share the gospel with others. You know, a little while back I was at the gym and I'm in the sauna. Okay, Some people like the sauna, some people don't like the sauna. Um, I'm in the sauna, it's extremely hot in there and as I'm sitting in the sauna, this guy walks in, he says, man, it's hottest in here. So I say, man, I wish hell was this tolerable. 
hell, hell isn't going to be this tolerable. The reality is that people are going to hell every day. And the, the way the Bible describes hell is that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal fire. If, if hell was only 115 degrees, that would not be that big of a deal. And I start having this conversation with this guy with about 20 other people in there. But here's the problem. This conversation that I was having, it was only in my head. I was coming up with some great things to say to engage this guy, but I wasn't actually saying them. I was just thinking it. So, you know, I'm like giving a sweet gospel presentation to a guy in my head. And then I started feeling pretty convicted because I know that I'm getting ready to preach on this passage and I'm thinking about these things. And so I just start praying, Lord, just give me some boldness. Man, I'm just so tired and frustrated with being a little weak jellyfish Christian. And kind of as I'm praying this, another group of like college students, they walk in and they're like, oh, it's hot as in here too. So I'm like, oh, wow, I guess that's the, the common denominator. So they start talking about, oh, we got to do something to pass the time. What do we do? Let's play 20 questions. And so, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't want to listen to these guys play 20 questions. But, but instead of being annoyed, I started looking at them a little bit different. Try to get, get the, the vision of Philip here. So they say, hey, you want to join? I like, sure, I'll join. So they go around. They do a couple rounds. Hey, what's your favorite color? And what's your favorite car? And what's your favorite place to vacation? And so it comes to me. It's my turn to ask a question. And so my question is, hey, if all of you guys were to die tonight, where do you think you would go? What would happen to your soul? I said, wow, that's a heavy-duty question for the sauna and, and 20 questions. And so here's the interesting thing. As they go around and they answer that, you know what everyone says? I'm going to heaven. 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 So part of me was like, oh, awesome. Another part of me was, wait a second. So they were about to skip me and go to the next question. So I said, well, wait, can I just ask one follow-up question just real quick? What's the basis? Who are you trusting to go to heaven? Now, I wish I could say that everyone just got down on their knees there in the sauna and they prayed and they all got saved. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with that. But at one moment, I was just terrified to say anything and I'm having this great discussion in my head. Then I thought about the Scripture and I thought about Philip and I thought about this text. I just wanted to be faithful. wanted to care about those people. So I asked questions. What encounter does God want you to take advantage of? Who's He preparing for you to engage? Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's a classmate. Maybe it's a mom that you keep bumping into at the park or at the grocery store. Who does God want you to engage with the gospel? You know, the Ethiopian, he woke up that morning. He had no idea someone was going to come to him with the greatest news of his life. That was literally going to change the trajectory of his eternal destiny. But it happened. Who does God want you to take the gospel to, even this week? So we've seen three preparations, okay, of a gospel encounter. What I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to focus in on our response. How should we respond? We know that we're the messenger. We know that we have a message that needs to go to a recipient. We know that God is actively working to provide these encounters. How do we respond so that we can be faithful when these encounters come? Here's the first thing. Be Christ-centered 
in your love. Be Christ-centered in your love. If you're going to be obedient to God's call to carry out the Great Commission, then I think we need to love a lot like Philip did. It's not a warm and, and fuzzy and this tingly sensation that a lot of people associate with love. No. Love is grounded in the truth. Boldness to speak the truth. Boldness to confront people. Boldness to, to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ. Boldness to present Jesus. It's a love that longs for others to experience the joy of being made right with God. See, if we want to advance the kingdom, if we want to see people get saved, we just need to have a heart for people. I think that's one of the things that I just lack too often. Not thinking about other people, not thinking about people's souls, just kind of thinking about myself, getting into a groove. We're only thinking about certain kind of people, having a selective type of love. I find it super easy. Hey, if you love the Lakers, we could talk about the Lakers all day. You're a basketball guy, you want to work out, that's a lot easier for me to talk to and engage. But, but do we only have love for people like us? Philip demonstrated a universal love for all people. It's not selective. He loves widows, we see that. Why do you think he loved widows? It's because Christ did. Because Christ loved widows and served widows. Philip had an extensive love. He, he was loving on the Samaritans and gave the Samaritans truth. And you say, well, why did Philip have an extensive love like that? Well, because Jesus did. He's just following in the footsteps of his master. Jesus is engaging with a Samaritan woman. Jesus had a heart for the Samaritans. Jesus had a heart for everyone. And so Philip is just following suit. So his love was universal. It was extending do we love people this way? People of other socioeconomic backgrounds, races, and religions. See, Philip loved the Jew. He loved the widow. He loved the Samaritan. It made no difference. Men, women, rich, poor, young, old. People of other religions. He loved them all. See, when it comes to the gospel, the gospel transcends all differences. I was at the gym again. And... Uh, I'm kind of thinking about this passage of Scripture and really feeling convicted by it. So again, I start praying, asking the Lord, hey, just Lord, send, send someone who's not like me. And before I'm done praying, in walks these two gigantic Sikhs. Well, I never really had a conversation with a Sikh. I mean, I grew up in East L.A. There's not a whole lot of Sikhs that I'm aware of in East Los Angeles. But here come these two Sikhs. And I'm like, well... The Lord is pretty good at answering prayers here. And I, I was just kind of praying it. I didn't really think that I would have to do that right now. <clears throat> and I'll tell you what. I was terrified and had no idea even where to begin. And I went up to them and just kind of put myself out there and said, I'm just so sorry. Forgive me if I sound ignorant. But the, the, the turban on your head, like, is that, is that like a religious thing? What, what, what's that about? And so we just spent like 20 minutes. They were telling me about their religion I started asking them, well, what do you guys think about Jesus? Jesus in your holy books, they had like 10 prophets, and the 11th is their own scriptures, and it talks about Jesus. And it was interesting to hear, you know, they're, they're very inclusive, right? Everyone, everyone's going to heaven. You either go to heaven or you're going to be reincarnated. And 
So it just gave me an opportunity to talk to him a little bit about Jesus. And I'm kind of fresh off of Scott's sermon from last week because this happened just a couple days ago. So Scott was preaching on John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I said that, and they're like, oh, yeah, we welcome everyone. I'm like, oh. I wasn't trying to offend the guys, but they wouldn't be offended anyway. But no, Jesus makes exclusive claims. But it's just interesting. You know, I, I don't think that I would ever talk to a bunch of Sikhs if it were not for the Word of God compelling me to love everyone the way Jesus did. See, I'm convinced that Philip was effective in his evangelism just because he loved people. You say, well, Dom, that's great, but how do I grow in my love for people? You know, I know in the past I've loved people, loved people well. Um, I've missed opportunities too. But how, how do I really grow in my love for others? Well, I think this is helpful. Understand that you were unlovable. Understand that God pursued you, poured out his grace on you, chased you down when you were unlovable. He extended his grace. He extended his mercy. He extended his love to you. See, that will change your view of other people. Do you ever just wake up in the morning and ask, why me, God? Why did you save me? It's not like I was a hot commodity. It's not like I had anything to offer God. But man, God was so gracious to me as a 20-year-old, as a rebel, as a hater of God, as a hater of religion. And yet God was so gracious that he opened up my eyes and opened up my heart to behold the beauty, the wonder, and the power of Christ. Just ask yourself that question. Ask it frequently. Why you? You don't have to be saved. You don't have to have heaven secured. You don't have to have all of your sins forgiven. But God chose to love you, and he sent someone to you with the gospel message. Don't you want to be that for somebody else? Don't forget that you were the Ethiopian. You were the outsider. I think that we'll gladly love all sorts of people, be ready to do whatever it takes to advance the gospel when we stand amazed at the magnificent grace of God. When the gospel becomes our constant meditation, when we're not just learning about it, but we're allowing it to sink deep, to marinate in the deepest recesses of our heart, that's when I think the joy that comes from knowing that we're saved will spill on over into conversations, into our love for other people. So yeah, I don't think Philip was a great evangelist because he had a special formula. It had everything to do with his spirit-empowered love, the kind of supernatural love that pushes us all out of our comfort zone, that puts us in uncomfortable positions for the sake of Christ because people need to hear the gospel. And all of that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that leads to our second personal commitment. The first, we want to be Christ-centered in our love. And now, we want to be led by the Spirit. The whole book of Acts is really about the Spirit's work in fulfilling Christ's mission. Yes? The book was, <clears throat> could easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right at the very beginning, in eight, we see it there. You will receive power... When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. In Acts 7, it says Philip and Stephen are filled with the Spirit. That's what makes them effective. So the question is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does that look like? 
we were at Teen Challenge the other week, and uh, sometimes they just have a different perception of what it means to like the spirit. They're calling the spirit of fire to come down and all kinds of things going on. But what does the spirit actually mean to be filled with the spirit? Well, look at verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him. The spirit of God led Philip to this man. And we don't want to make it more mysterious than it is or that it has to be. It's very simple. The Spirit of God spoke, and Philip obeyed. You want to be full of the Spirit? When the Spirit of God speaks, obey. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I'm open. Whoever you have for me, send me. You've already put the message in my mouth. The opposite of that is Jonah. Not here I am, but I'm not here. Send somebody else. That, that kind of attitude is devoid of the Spirit of God. Do you find yourself saying that? Not me. Not right now. Not to him. Not to her. N- not, not at this time. We begin to make all these excuses and we want to justify ourselves. We begin to rationalize and convince ourselves that it's just not the right time. This isn't the right scenario. There's kind of some family difficulty. I don't want to make things worse. Hey, I'm just getting to know this person. Let me spend some more time getting to know them before I engage them with the gospel and tell them about Jesus. And we come up with all these excuses. And hey, I'll just be honest. There are times when it might be a better time. There might be a better scenario. There might be a better environment. But it's not all the time. So if you're always making this excuse like, oh, I just, it's, just not, it's not right right now. I, I need to pray more. I need to, yeah, probably, but then actually open up your mouth and say something. We don't want to be excuse makers. I think you and I, for sure, I've made excuses not to share the gospel with people. And more than likely, the same problem I have is the problem that you have. It's just fear of man. Fear of what they're going to think about us, what they're going to say about us, how the relationship will go. Let's stop saying, not me, not now, not him, not there. And let's just repent. Right? Let's stop being so busy and so preoccupied with ourselves and so me-centered and me-focused. And let's get Christ-centered and Christ-focused and be led by the Spirit to actually engage people. And to be in tune with the Spirit of God's leadings and promptings. And I realize even as I say those things, leading, prompting, people in our circles, they kind of, whoa, wait a second here, Dom. Aren't we supposed to be cessationists? What's all this leading and prompting stuff? The book of Acts is, is, a, is a story, and we're not supposed to try to duplicate what's going on in the book of Acts, all these miracles, right? But there's a big difference between cessationism cessationism, sensationalism, and being led by the Spirit. See, I'm convinced that the Spirit of God, He still leads, He still prompts today. And we don't have to wait for some supernatural manifestation to share the gospel. The name doesn't have to be written on the wall. The bat signal doesn't have to flash. And we're only going to jump into action when we see the bat signal come on. This is the reason why. You've already been sent You've already been commissioned. You you don't have to wait around. 
You don't need the miraculous. You know what the miraculous is? Jesus saved you and told you to go share the gospel with other people. That's the miraculous right there. You know, when I was um, with Rick Holland, he came and spoke at Summerfest. Summerfest was really all about um, showing people from the Old Testament that it points to Jesus. And I picked up Rick, said, hey, Rick, where do you want to go, man? Hey, let's go to In-N-Out. All right, let's go to In-N-Out. Maybe you don't have In-N-Out in Kansas. They don't have In-N-Out in Kansas, do they? So we go to In-N-Out. <clears throat> he orders his double-double. I order my three-by-three. Three. I'm sitting down. Man, I get to spend some time with Rick Holland. He's asking me, hey, what's, what's Summerfest going to be like? Who's going to be there? He's kind of getting himself mentally prepared to, to preach. You know, oh, there's Rick, there might be a lot of non-believers there. Our church, we invite people, and we want them to hear the gospel. And so he's thinking on a big scale how he's going to share the gospel. Well, right next to us, there's the guy sitting by himself eating a cheeseburger. And so I'm talking to Rick, and Rick's not even looking at me. And Rick just goes right for the guy. And he starts sharing the gospel with the guy. He just asks him, hey, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm kind of like a, like a chaplain, but not, not, not a rig- a religiously affiliated. But I'm with people as they're getting ready to move on from life to death. And, uh, you know, I'm in lots of hospices and, and hospitals. And, and so Rick just starts going at it and engaging him and sharing the gospel with him. And I was, oh, it was sweet. I'm just like chomping on my three-by-three, three, watching him go to work as he's evangelizing. And I jumped in there too, and we had some good conversation with this guy. But afterwards, Rick, why, why, why did you go for that? Oh, I just felt like the Spirit said I need to talk to the guy. I wasn't like, whoa, whoa, Rick, wait, hold on. I don't know about all this like spirit prompting stuff. He was just being faithful. Learned a lot of lessons that day. You could enjoy a cheeseburger, but enjoy a cheeseburger while you're sharing the gospel with somebody. It was really neat. Rick did a fantastic job. Well, in the book, The Sovereign Spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, especially about this text. He says, There is no question that God's people can look for and expect leadings, guidance, indications of what they're meant to do. If you read the history of the saints, God's people throughout the centuries, and especially the history of revivals, you'll find that this is something which is perfectly clear and definite. Men have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something. They knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and it transpired that it obviously was his leading. It seems clear to me that if we deny such a possibility, we are again guilty of quenching the Spirit. Lord forbid that we would quench the Spirit. May we be so in tune with the Spirit of God that when he nudges us, prompts us, use whatever word that you want, that we're just obedient. So, we want to be Christ-centered in our love. We want to be led by the Spirit. And here's our third personal commitment, and probably the most important. We need to lead people to Jesus from the Scriptures. We need to lead people to Jesus from the scriptures. See, testimonies are great. Handing out a track, it's a good thing. But what people need most is to see Jesus from the Bible. So you can say you love people. You may even work hard to demonstrate that love. I was just talking to Brother Doug a little while ago, and he was firing me up for this message. He says, so often, Dom, people are building buildings and doing schools and helping out the orphans and doing all this great stuff. But too often, there's no Jesus in there. 
No one's preaching Jesus. So he said, I've never been a member of a church, but the reason why I am committed to being a member of this church is because we actually open up the Bible and preach Jesus to people. It's not just social justice. It's not just helping the needy. It's preaching Jesus along with those things. We need to open up the Bibles and present Jesus to people. That is the litmus test of our love. That's the litmus test of whether you're really walking in the Spirit. Do you present Christ to people? Even in this text, the Spirit is supernaturally guiding Philip. We see this conversation that's happening, but it's all centered around what? The Word of God. It's the Word of God that is the means by which the Ethiopian is saved and then baptized. Look at verse 32. Now, the passage of Scripture was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth, and the eunuch said to Philip, About who, whom, I asked, does the prophet say this? Is it about him or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I already mentioned, you can't find a better Old Testament text that lays out how Jesus Christ is the only remedy for a wretched condition. And really, almost every verse in Isaiah 53 is a powerful verse. In fact, in the New Testament, we see it quoted everywhere. Much of our New Testament theology regarding substitutionary sacrifice, the atonement, finds its place in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. What do we learn about the suffering servant from this passage? That he suffers on behalf of others. He's despised and rejected by men. He dies for the sins of the world. He's buried with the wicked. And he declares many people righteous. The amazing thing is that when Jesus steps on the scene, he says this, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even Jesus, during his earthly ministry, that text that David said, a lot of Jews avoid, Jesus said, that's me. The Ethiopian is, who who is this guy? Is 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 it the prophet? Is it Israel? Is it somebody else? Philip said, I know who he is. I actually know him personally. Just a few months ago, there was a guy who went to a place called Golgotha. He was born into this world, only a mom, virgin birth, miraculous. He was sent from God. He's from everlasting and everlasting. He lived a perfect life, no sin, faithfully fulfilling every single commandment of the Lord doing the will of the Father for his entire life. He was betrayed. He went to the cross. He died a death that he didn't deserve. His body was beaten. His blood was spilled. All for your sake and my sake. He was crucified on the cross. The greatest travesty in all the world. The Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, died in your place and in my place. But the story is not over. He rose three days later, just as he promised. He ascended to God. He gave the spirit to man. 
And if you repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. There is no other name by which men can be saved except Jesus and Jesus alone. Yeah, I know that guy. His name is Jesus. And he used that scripture as the starting point. I don't know how long he rode in the carriage with this guy, but that was probably the sweetest Bible study. Maybe second to Jesus actually on the road to Emmaus with those disciples as he opened up Moses and the prophets and explained from the scriptures himself. You hear people say this all the time. Hey, preach the gospel, and if it's necessary, what do they say? Use words. I get the sentiment of that. You know, people are saying, hey, we want our lifestyle to match up with the things that we preach. But really, it's just foolish to think that people are going to get saved apart from the message. We need to preach the message of Christ. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In fact, Romans 10 and verse 11 says this, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How were they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. My wife is uh, preparing to, to teach in First Peter, and we're reading the passage together. And her passage is just so beautiful. In First in Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says this. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, what Isaiah wrote, what Jeremiah wrote, what Daniel wrote, what all the prophets wrote, they were searching and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even the angels long to look. See, the Spirit works through the Word of God. Jesus himself said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words, the words that I have spoken to you, they are Spirit and life. See, like Philip, I think that we need to lead others to Christ from the Scriptures. You cannot control if someone's going to believe. You cannot control if someone is going to reject. But you know what you can control? You can control opening up this book and telling people about Jesus. Let the Lord deal with the results. Only He can. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, He said that the preacher's responsibility, no matter what the scripture, it's just to read the text, and when you read the text, make a beeline to Christ. That's exactly what Philip did with this message, and it was just the starting point. You know, I I read this passage of scripture, and I say, man, I want to be like that. So familiar with the Bible, not fumbling around with it. 
not unsure, but confident, able to defend the faith, being able to give an answer for those who ask about my hope. We want to be able to wield the Bible, use the Bible, not thumping people over the head with it, but to be accurate, to be precise, to be loving with the Scriptures as we point people to Jesus. You know, Philip, he valued the Word of God. He depended upon its power. Paul said, hey, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Every time we sit under the Word, every time we open up the Word, we're actually training ourselves to be engaged in these gospel encounters, to better ourselves as we extend the kingdom. Philip knew the story. Man, let's be a church that knows the story, able to summarize God's great redemptive plan. You don't have to be a seminary student. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to take the the test and and be gifted in evangelism to extend the kingdom. All you need is to be Christ-centered in your love, led by the Spirit, and able to point people to Jesus from the Bible. So every personal encounter includes the preparation of the messenger, the recipient. Let God provide those encounters. We, on our hand, let's be filled with the kind of Christ-like love that wins people, led by the Spirit, and pointing people to Jesus from the Scriptures. There are plenty of people that you know that need to hear the gospel. You have the message. There are plenty of people who are on their way to hell. You have the message that can change that. Say, that's a lot of pressure on me. God will deal with the results. You just be faithful. Mark Dever, he says, look, we don't fail in our evangelism when we faithfully tell the gospel, and yet the person is not converted. He says this, we only fail in our evangelism when we don't faithfully tell the gospel at all. So may the Lord give us grace to tell others about Jesus. May He increase our love for Him and for the lost. May He fill us with His Spirit. And may He drive us into a greater and deeper gospel understanding that we would love all people, be concerned about all souls for the advancement of the kingdom, 